0: Want to do better? Then it's time to change the story. Welcome to our show about new visions currently transforming the world through the confluence of art, tech, and innovation. And now your hosts, Michael Ashley and Neil Sahota. Hey
1: everybody, we want to introduce you to Jennifer Friend from the Project Hope Alliance. We are partnering with her Neil and I, with Changing the Story. And we're very, very proud to be part of this this project right now, now more than ever. We need your help. We need to help our children. And so we very much are excited to bring you, Jennifer and the Project Hope Alliance, and see that we can do great good in the world.
2: Thank you, we're so grateful for this partnership. You know, in Orange County alone, there's over 28,000 children in our public education system experiencing homelessness. But we know that if we invest in our kids today, they won't be homeless tomorrow. i have really seeing that there is a $264 ROI for every $100 invested at Project HOPE for our programming that we're doing with our homeless children and youth.
0: Well, thank, thank you for all the hard work, Jennifer, and we're running a special, uh, I guess we'll call it a contest. We're going to try and raise money for Project Hope Alliance. Uh, there's a special page on our website. Check out the note below, and please participate, and please donate of yourself. Time as well as your money is always appreciated. They're always looking for skills any kind of help they can get, and it's a really worthy cause, so thank you for your help. Thank, thank you. you. Welcome to another episode of Changing the Story. We have a phenomenal guest today who's made a difference in so many people's lives. Jennifer Friend. She's the CEO of Project Hope Alliance. Since 2013, more than 900 children and their families have been moved out of homelessness under her leadership as CEO. Prior to becoming CEO, Jennifer enjoyed a successful career as a partner at a large law firm managing a litigation team and a substantial personal book of business, representing national and international clients throughout the civil courts of California. Jennifer, thank you for being on the show and welcome.
2: Thank you, it's great to be here.
1: So Jennifer, as a visionary, what is the story that you want to bring to the world?
2: As a visionary, so I'll just skip through and we'll, we'll assume the premise. Um, Thank you for that. The story I'd like to bring for the world is that we live our purpose not despite who we are, but because of who we are. Uh, For me personally, I spent a lot of time um, thinking that I was able to succeed as an attorney or in life despite the fact that I was homeless as a kid and and despite the fact that my family went through a lot of very, very difficult things. Um, Now, for the first time in my life, I'm able to be integrated in who I am. uh, And I realize that it's actually because of what I went through uh, that I'm able to live my purpose. And so I think so often we think that um, things that happened to us in the past, we're able to achieve things in the future despite them. But if we all realize that if we bring our whole person to everything that we do, it's actually those things that we've overcome that make us uniquely qualified.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree with that. And I think embracing all of those parts of yourself, even the ones that you may uh, not feel the best about is really important because that's your story. And so for people that don't know your story, could you please tell us what happened and how you got where you are today?
2: Yeah, so I grew up in Orange County. Uh, My family, my dad was an entrepreneur and back in the late 70s had this crazy idea that everyone would one day walk around with a personal phone device. Can you imagine that? Whoa. I know. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I why don't, he was crazy, right? And so because we didn't have money, and it's actually a great example of how sometimes it takes money to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, my father was hustling. Um, he was the entrepreneur who was always trying to get someone to believe in his dream. Sometimes it worked out uh, and sometimes it didn't. When it didn't work out, we lived in motels all over Orange County. Uh, we slept on the floors of a lot of people's um, living rooms, their dens. I have three brothers and the only girl, so there are six of us in total as a family. You know, We had food from the church uh, food pantry, and we did it all um, in silence. We didn't let anyone know. So we were going to schools in affluent communities, uh, Newport Beach, Huntington Beach, and we were trying to keep up appearances and create reasons why we couldn't have anyone over. It was, um, or couldn't do anything with our friends. Um, And it was was incredibly difficult. And um, personally, that made me feel invisible for a large part of my life. And that was something that I never shared. My brothers never shared with anyone. I was 42 years old before I actually shared my story. Um, and the first time I shared it, it ended up on the front page of the Orange County Register. So um, I was a partner at a law firm at the time, a large law firm. And I really was feeling conflicted because I believe that I had this story for a reason. and. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what the purpose of it was. But then when I saw people responding to seeing me and thinking about right, wrong, or indifferent, thinking about their daughter or their granddaughter or seeing themselves in me and and that um, taking away some barriers to talk about what homelessness really looks like in Orange County. Yeah. Uh, I have an amazing husband, and we made the family decision for me to leave that gig and come over to Project Hope eight years ago. Wow.
0: That's, that's fantastic. And I mean, powerful story. You you lived it, you know, the pains. I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't realize some of the, the challenges and I'll call it kind of the ripple effects until I heard like your story, other people's stories. What, I mean, what happens to like these children that are homeless, if they don't get help, what ends up happening to them normally?
2: Well, sadly and tragically in our country, there's been a 70% increase in the number of children experiencing homelessness in America. And what that ends up resulting in is only a 64% high school graduation rate. And just that one data point, if a student doesn't graduate from high school, they're almost 400% to be a homeless adult. In Orange County, we spend um, on average, close to $300 million on fighting homelessness when you look at all the systems and their interconnectivity, but what it does to a kid just at the the human level makes them feel invisible. You feel ashamed of who you are, despite the fact that there are things about yourself that you're very proud of. Mm -hmm. You don't believe that you have the ability to hope or plan for things because you have no control over your circumstances. Uh, it also, you know, the imposter syndrome, which entrepreneurs talk about a lot. You want to talk about, I get like, you know, grade A imposter syndrome. Right. Uh, it's, it's really the mental and emotional toll that it takes on our kids every day is something that um, really can, can limit their belief in themselves.
0: Yeah. Wow, wow. So how, how is Project Hope Alliance helping these kids and their families?
2: Well, see, kind of going back to the beginning, we know that our kids are amazing, not despite what they're going through, but because they choose to continue going through it, right? right. So at Project Hope, we are hyper-focused on the kids. We believe very much we need to be upstream. The inflow of homelessness in LA County alone rose 50% last year, 50%. We're spending a lot of resources, and I'm not saying they're not important, but a lot downstream. The kids are upstream, and the kids will take the creativity, they'll take the resilience, the grit, the determination, and we follow them. So we actually are on school campuses, public school campuses, doing life with our kids, kindergarten until age 24 filling in the gaps and eliminating barriers that homelessness causes in their lives.
1: Yeah, I, uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, we are, Neil and I are both based in Orange County as well. And so when you drive around Orange County, unless there's certain parts, obviously, uh, where, where you would never suspect that this problem is going on. And at the same time, I'm reminded, there's a book called King of the Hill. Uh, it was written about a, a young boy who was going through the Great Depression. It takes place in, in St. Louis, where, where I grew up. And it was turned into a movie. And so this boy, speaking about having to play a role, all of his friends were going to these big parties and he was the poorest one that was there. And he had to develop those that resiliency that you talked about. And I think it's really interesting that what you're saying about these, these students and these, these young people is that you have to also embrace this, that, that part of your identity because it's it's a very unfortunate thing. It's a terrible thing. I also think though that, It does allow you to build resilience, to build that grit. When you said that quote, it reminded me of Winston Churchill, you know, about you're going through it and just keep going through it because of what it does for your psyche and for your personality to, to go through something like this.
2: That's right. And not only that, like there are a lot of people, whether they're in their 50s, like I am, or they're in their 20s. And right now at this very tumultuous time in our nation's history with the pandemic with the uprising for social justice, all of these different things, it can feel incredibly overwhelming. Yeah. When you know that you've been through something that you thought was going to defeat you, but yeah. it didn't, you have a reservoir of strength and tenacity that you pull through. I know I see that a lot in our first-generation students at the college level, uh, particularly, um, I'm a UCI alumni. And I've been really involved there with first-gen students they're not only um, getting through it, they're rising to the top. The creativity that it takes, you know, my uh, brothers are entrepreneurs and we talk about, we had the best education. Wharton had nothing on selling strawberries on the side of the road when you're like eight years old trying to figure out that hustle, right? Mm-hmm. So I do, I do think so. And I, I think that um, if you have the courage to continue and if you have the courage of optimism, those are things that can never be taken from you. You can't be evicted from, from your internal fortitude, even if you can be evicted from your house.
1: Right, right. And it, it seems like, of course, we never want anything like this to happen to, to any child. Uh, at the same time, I think about, I was watching a video recently about the, uh, the rise of what they call safetyism when it comes to parenting, where we want everything to be, we want our children to be protected. We want them to be safe. And I think though what you're saying, and and no one wants to go to that far, of the extreme, but the idea that you allow a child to problem solve, you allow them to develop their own resilience, you allow them to figure out on their own. um, It is a very important thing. And when you, like what you said, when you find that deep reservoir inside of you, right? And that you didn't realize you have. I'll give you an example from my own life. I was traveling abroad in the early 2000s. And uh, at one point, my, my traveling companion and I were kicked off a train at gunpoint because we happened, my friend didn't have the right visa. And so we were stranded um, in a border town and we didn't speak the language. This is before smartphones. And we had to figure it out on our own at two in the morning. And it was a horrible thing to go through at the time. But I look back at that moment because I had to dig deep and my, friend, my friends and I had to dig deep. To, to figure our way out of it, and so I feel like there are those moments in life that you don't want to happen to you. Even COVID nineteen is like this in a way, where you don't want these these things to happen to you, but they develop your personality and your character. And I think that's you know that's evident in yourself, right?
2: Well, it it does develop. I mean, I joke all the time. I have enough character. Um, I don't need any more. <laughs> But yes, it absolutely does. And, you know, our kids, the ones that we have the privilege of walking alongside at Project Hope, they just need to know that someone sees them and Mm -hmm. someone has their back, right? So they are trying to problem solve. They are problem solving. But, you know, it's one thing to solve a problem um, and figure out how much money can you make during the summer so that you can maybe take a class at OCC. It's another thing to problem solve for I don't have food. Um, I'm living in a motel in Garden Grove, but my school is in Costa Mesa. How the heck do I get there? We have some kids that get up at four o'clock in the morning and take three buses to get to school in Costa Mesa, right? And so, but you do, um, and you know, my children have a much different experience Mm -hmm. than I had. And I worked really hard to make that possible. And I do think though, that our kids, if you give them the ability to build trust in themselves and their own decision-making and problem solve, that's something that will go with them forever. Right,
0: right. I mean, it sounds like resilience is good, but if they don't have the opportunity to leverage the resilience, they kind of stonewall.
2: No, that's exactly right. And so that's where that hope, that opportunity for hope and visibility really lives. So when you know that someone sees you and you know that you have someone to go to, I mean, I can I can remember feeling like, does it even matter? Why the heck am I trying, right? I would, I'd try out for the school play and I'd get a role, but my parents didn't have the gas money to drive me to rehearsals five days a week. So then I would have to turn the role down. So then as I got a little bit older, I constantly had to have this internal dialogue with myself, like. Should I even try? So what we get to do is let our kids know if you try, we're going to make sure that what you create for yourself is possible going forward.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, it's It's such an interesting just juxtaposition. Like I said before, driving around Orange County, there's such wealth here. Um, and then what you're saying uh, that these these children are having to take these these multiple buses just to live out uh, eke out a, a daily existence, right? how can we do a better job systemically to ensure that people do not fall between the cracks? Because of this, I mean, this is happening in Orange County, but it's happening in in cities all across America, all across the world. How can we do a better job of making sure that there isn't such a wide division between the have and the have nots?
2: So some practical things I think that we can do is we need to actually, uh, number one, admit that we have 1.3 million children experiencing homelessness that are known in America's public school system. Mm -hmm. And then we have to commit to creating the opportunity for them to live into their dreams, right? And what that means is actually having people on the school campuses. We have to go to where the kids are. Right now, the way our social services system operates, Mm -hmm. it operates under the premise that people can get to where the resources are, it doesn't work if you're a kid, if you're in third grade, how the heck are you going to get anywhere. Mm-hmm. So really, we're finding that going onto the school campuses and partnering with the systems in which our children on a daily basis are interacting is making all the difference in the world. So having an office on the school campus where students can just walk in, teachers can refer, our janitorial uh, team members on public school campuses are some of the best sources of referrals for us. Really making that commitment to being upstream, investing resources in that, and, and placing people on school campuses where the children are and plugging ourselves into the systems in which they they interact will make all the difference in the world.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you got a a really good process in place and you've you've got a good way to identify these kids. But what's it like trying to get them into like your program? I mean, is it like something receptive or they're kind of. uh...
2: Yeah, no, and that's fair. I'm going to be really honest. At the beginning, I expected a lot of kids to have a similar, you know, we always project our own experience onto other people. I expected a lot of kids to carry a ton of shame with their situation and not seek us out. Instead what ended up happening was they build their own grassroots movement where, you know, so Joe comes in and we start working with Joe and then Joe's like, you know, my buddy Paul is in the same spot, hey Paul, come. So we've ended up being like the de facto cool place to hang out during lunch and that like brought tears to our eyes when we found out that kids who aren't experiencing homelessness but are going through tough stuff want to sit in our, our office space during lunch, it brought true, because te- then we done it. Like it was a partnership and they knew that we were for them and we were working together. Um, but it's different, you know, our kids, some of our kids are, are struggling with things that would lay any of us out, right? Yeah. There's one young man who spent his senior year at Newport Harbor High School, living in a tent because both of his parents suffered from severe mental illness that they were um, self-medicating for. And he was worried that if he was moved into some type of housing, that they would be dead. He is now a junior at Cal State Fullerton, uh, getting ready to take the LSAT. Uh, But, you know, you have to realize it's a partnership with, with the kids and with the youth. Um, we can't like jump in and tell them what to do. Um, and they've created their own community in a way we never imagined, but we definitely hoped for.
1: When you say that, I I also can't help, but think about the parents too. I mean, there must be an incredible sense of shame. I don't know how your father, um, you know, how he, he dealt with this whole situation. But I know that as a as a father that I would feel just terrible if this were my situation. And I'm an entrepreneur as well. And clearly he wanted the best for you and for, for your brothers as well. Um, how how do we deal with the shame on not just on the on the children's side, but on, on the parents' side? Because this is just me as an outsider. I wonder if that is, is an obstacle for you because, you know, when we... Especially in America, we we have a tendency not to want to show the bad things that are occurring in our lives Uh, on social media We try to very much put a certain image out there And so when the truth comes out from these parents, I can't help but feel like they must be very ashamed and 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 feel like they're disappointed too. How how do you deal with that part of this?
2: You're absolutely right, Michael. I mean and that was a huge consideration that I had to have Um, I talked to my whole family before I even told my story my father passed away before I took this job and really Mm. one of the only reasons I think I had the courage in the moment to take the job was because he wasn't living and I knew he wouldn't be shamed on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, our parents, uh, some of them are apprehensive for a couple of reasons too. Like, who are we? And they're going to trust us with their kids, one of the things that we've done as a pivot in strategy, but not mission during COVID-19 is we've been going out to where the kids are in the motels and giving out Chromebooks and prepaid wifi hotspots. And it's given us access to a lot of parents in very real time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, this one mom had all three of her kids trying to do online learning from a smartphone, a singular smartphone. Okay. If you can even imagine that. And, I have to believe that the way that this team shows up every day in genuine empathy and compassion and dignity is seen in our faces. And in our eyes when we're relating with one another, but it takes time. You, you have to respect that parental relationship. And we have parents working three jobs. These are not parents that don't care about their children. Sure. These are mothers who fled domestic violence situations. These may be um, people who the first recession knocked them on their butt. And then now something like COVID has just completely annihilated any type of financial resources that they have. Yeah. Um, and they care deeply for their children's education. And so really building that trust and letting them know, we also work with them through parenting and, and, you know, we, we have paid for moms and dads to go through technical training so that they can get higher wage jobs. Um, it, it really, but it all, it always comes down to relationship, respect, dignity, and empathy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That, that's a tough job. I mean, I won't sugarcoat it. You guys have done some really amazing work. I'm I'm kind of curious for those, those children, those families that you helped, what kind of impact has had not just on them, but like the community at large?
2: Yeah. So that's a great question. And I have a great answer for you because (laughs) of our friends at Edwards Life Sciences. Um, so a couple of things I can tell you is, I shared that the national graduation rate 64 percent, and we know that one number: 400 percent more likely to be a homeless adult. Our graduation rate, on average, from the um, beginning of this work, is 84 percent. Oh. And Edwards just donated a team of scientists to go through and do an ROI analysis on our work, and they found that on an annualized basis, per youth, we are making a contribution of $75,000 a year. So we're saving our county $45,000 in social services but then we're adding $30,000 a year because our youth are working and they're employed and they're paying taxes. So um, over a 10 year time period, that's over $14 million. And that's what our little group now. So for like every hundred dollars that someone invests in project hope Alliance, the return on investment is $264 in real costs. Um, But you know, Personally, the part I like is what we got to do right before I got on on with you guys, which was give a congratulatory package to this young man who just graduated from high school and is the first in his family to graduate from high school. And he's got plans far beyond today. I mean, and that has generational impact right? So we have the qualitative and the quantitative, um, but the, the qualitative is, is the stuff that, that makes this so so satisfying.
1: <clears throat> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to build on that question with a generational question uh, for you, which is, okay, so let's imagine it's just a few years down the road, five years, 10 years down the road. What does the future look like to you based on the work that you're doing now? And what could it look like?
2: That our kids are no longer invisible. I mean, that really, once we see our children and youth experiencing homelessness, you have no choice but to either be against them or for them. It's very clear. Right. So the visibility is paramount. And then we see a world where we have people on every public school campus really there with the resources and the time specifically allocated to walk alongside our children and youth at a minimum to high school graduation, right? And so there's a convergence. You know, the COVID-19 has really created an opportunity. It's created an opportunity because you have, you know, middle-class parents who are trying to figure out how the heck they get through online learning. And we have an empathy that maybe we didn't have before. And then someone says, could you imagine if you had six people living in a 214 square foot motel room with three kids trying to do online learning on a singular smartphone? And people go, wow, I hadn't thought of that. But what can I do to change it? Yeah. So the equity, the educational equity divide is no longer invisible. And we need to build on that platform to eradicate the invisibility of our kids. But I am very, I'm, I'm a pragmatic Pollyanna. So I'm very hopeful that we're going to take this moment in time and we're going to come out on the other side, better and stronger for our kids.
0: That's great. That That's awesome. And Jennifer, I think, Myself, and hopefully, on the behalf of all our audience, I want to say a big thank you to you and the Project Hope Alliance team for all the work that you guys have done. I mean, you're making a difference in the lives, you're making a difference in the community, you're actually paying the community back <laughs> with your work. How can people stay connected with Project Hope Alliance, see what you guys are up to? And I do encourage everyone to try and donate to such a worthy charity. What's the best way to do this?
2: Really, if you know, everyone always directs people to their to their websites just because it has the greatest um, uh, aggregate of information. So our website is projecthopealliance.org. We need volunteers of all different facets. I would say that the um, impact that we're going to see from that Edwards Life Sciences team donating their intellectual capital to do an ROI analysis those that are listening or or watching this, think about what you uniquely have to contribute, right? If you're in marketing, I can't afford a huge marketing team, but maybe you're the best marketer that anyone knows. So on, on the website, there's a pull down for volunteering. There's a pull down to get information about what we're doing. Absolutely. We can't continue this work without the support of our community. So it's, you know we need resources, and and I would argue that your resources aren't any better place than in the life of a child.
0: Very true. Everyone, like it, money's always good, but if you want to donate some of your time, your skills, and knowledge. It's very much appreciated. And Jennifer, thank you for coming on and sharing your story and sharing the story of all these children that you know you're trying to help. Yes, thank you very much.
2: It's been my joy. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
1: Take care. Hey, if you like today's show, please remember to hit the like button and leave a comment.
0: If you've been enjoying the Changing the Story podcast series, please subscribe and share it with your friends.
1: Thank you.